grab your Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 23. We're at chapter 23. Can you believe it? Move it along. You know, one thing I always tell couples when I'm going to perform their wedding is that they should prepare for something to go wrong and to be totally okay with it. No wedding is going to be perfect. It happens, all right? And I learned that from, from personal experience. Uh, my wife, Amber, and I were married in July of 2014. Anyone else get married in July? Good. Uh, because let me tell you, <laughs> if you ever want to get married in Tennessee, don't pick July. It was hot. It was muggy. But we made it. You know, At our wedding, we, we had a few mishaps. Uh, for one, the flower people totally forgot to show up. We had to call them and say, hey, guys, you coming? It was about an hour before the ceremony. They made it. It was okay. Uh, the photographer, she arrived, and she said, oh, yeah, I'm so excited to be here. This is the first wedding I've ever done. Uh, it's not exactly what you want to hear. Uh, Amber's makeup person had a family emergency and had to bail the night before. And then one of my groomsmen got the wrong color vest and tie from the rental company. But guess what? We still got married. She still likes me. I couldn't believe it. Uh, it was still a great day. We, we look back on that. You know, we laugh. And I tell couples about that so they know that things are going to happen and that it will all be okay because... What's most important on your wedding day is that you say your vows before God and everyone else present. That is the key to the entire wedding because that is the moment you promise to keep the marriage covenant. We don't have many covenants in our society today. We have contracts and other types of legal agreements, but covenants have been around a long time, and they're different from contracts See, a covenant is meant to be a lasting agreement between, because it forms a new relationship that is built on faithfulness. We can see that in a wedding ceremony. A man and a woman who are unrelated willingly choose to form a new relationship. They each take an oath before God and their community. They put rings on their fingers as a covenant sign. They walk in separately and they leave together as one flesh. So a wedding is a covenant ceremony where a new relationship is established and promised for life. And that picture of a covenant is, is so important for the way we understand the Bible. See, the Bible describes God's relationship with his created people as a covenant relationship. And he makes several of these covenants throughout the Bible. In our time in Exodus, we've talked a lot about God's covenant with Abraham God chose Abraham out of all the people on the earth. And he told him, he said, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. And I'm going to bless your people and make them my people so that they might bless all the nations on the earth. We talked briefly about the covenant ceremony God had with Abraham, which was common back in this time. What they did is they took animals, they sacrificed them by cutting them in half, and then they walked between the two halves. That was meant to demonstrate the seriousness of keeping and breaking the covenant to both parties. Except in God's covenant with Abraham, God did something strange. He put Abraham to sleep, and instead only God passed between the animals, demonstrating that he alone would ensure this covenant was kept. And he did. Abraham went on to have a miracle child through his wife Sarah, and from this child would come the nation of people we call the Israelites. The book of Exodus opened with these people having spent centuries in slavery in Egypt until God heard their cries and raised up a deliverer to bring them out named Moses. 
Moses performed miracles and brought plagues upon Egypt. And then God did the greatest miracle of all. He parted the Red Sea. Israel walked through on dry land to their freedom while their enemies were destroyed forever. That moment signified God's great love for his people and his faithfulness to keep the covenant no matter what. But God needed to build on that initial covenant with Abraham. He had a people, and he was taking them to the land where he wanted them to be. But now it was time to explain a bit more on what it would look like to live as God's people. So he had Moses bring them to this big mountain, Mount Sinai. He demonstrated his holiness by descending upon it in smoke and lightning and fire. And he invited Moses to come up and talk to him. And he gave Moses a new covenant that would build on the Abrahamic covenant. We call it the Mosaic covenant. And what made this covenant unique was that it had laws with it. There were the Ten Commandments. And then there were a series of applications of those commandments detailing how Israel should live as God's people. They were to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation so they could show the rest of the world what it looks like to be God's people. We spent the last few weeks, if you were here with us, looking at the Ten Commandments and those laws and rules. And today we come to the covenant ceremony, which is going to look a lot like a wedding. God and the people are going to make this relationship official with a few very important and somewhat strange acts. I want to walk through this with you. And then at the end, we're going to see how this points to the covenant we have with God today as Christians. And we're going to celebrate that covenant with a ceremony this morning that we Christians have been doing for a long time. It's called the Lord's Supper. Let's pick up first where we left off in Exodus chapter 23. Jump to the end, verses 20 to 22. God said, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way. And to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. Uh, This right here is actually a continuation of God's law. So after God gives Israel all the rules in which they should live by, he gives them this promise of his presence. They got a difficult journey coming up, but they will not be going alone. God is going to send his angel before them. And he he says some unique things about this angel. If you noticed, he, he said that people need to obey the angel because God's name is in him. God also equates obeying the angel with obeying God. Here again, we have an encounter with this spiritual being the Old Testament calls the angel of the Lord. And I would encourage you, this would be a fascinating study for you sometime, to look at all the places in the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord is referenced. He's called an angel, and yet he's often spoken of as being God himself. It's it's a little strange. So some have speculated and said, oh, maybe this was Jesus, kind of pre-incarnate, or or maybe this is some other kind of physical manifestation of God's presence. We don't know exactly the relationship between God and the angel of the Lord, but God's point here is simply that he will go before them. They're not going to go on this journey alone. I I thought about it like this. My my kids, they're, they're at a stage where they're afraid of the dark. So when it's nighttime and they need to go into another room in the house and the lights are off because I'm always turning the lights off. You know, that's what dads do. Uh, my, they'll say to me, they'll say, Daddy, can you come with me? It's dark. I'm scared. 
And I'll say, no, get over it. We live in a dark world. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I don't usually say that. But uh, I will, I will uh, instead, I'll, I'll get up a little begrudgingly. I'll get up, and I'll, I'll go before them, and I'll lead the way, and I'll turn the light switches on, okay, so they can see. Sometimes I will even take the flashlight on my phone and, and shine under the bed to show that, no, there's not a monster living there. Uh, my going before them gives them the confidence to follow along. That's the idea here. God's angel is going to go before his people, and this is meant to comfort and strengthen them in their journey. Not only will he go before them, but here's what else he'll do. Look at verses 23 to 28. My angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out. You shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them. Nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites." From before you. So when the people get to the promised land, there are going to be some other people already, already there. And these are wicked people who hate God and his people. And so the angel of the Lord will go before the people to drive them out of this land. Verse 28, God says he will send hornets, which if you look at your Bible, you got a little, uh, what you call it, end note there. It's likely not literal hornets, though if you were to send hornets into my land, I'd probably move to Missouri. Uh, So that's a good idea, but likely what he means, this is some sort of plague. God is going to drive the people out, and the chief reason for doing so is that the, the people don't worship their gods. Remember the first of the Ten Commandments is, you shall have no other gods before me. And idolatry would be the chief temptation for Israel, and so God is warning them now before they ever even get there. God also promises blessings to Israel. He says, you'll have food and water, you'll have children, you won't get sick, you'll live a long time. In other words, obedience to God means things would go well for them. And these are not verses, just a word of caution, these are not verses that we should pull out and apply to our own lives directly. We are not promised these things. And for us today, there is no guarantee, and these are not necessarily signs of God's blessing These are particular promises to God's people under the old covenant. So what we see in this section is that having a covenant with God means he will take care of you. He's going to protect and provide for his people. Let's keep going. Exodus 24, look at verses 1 through 8. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord. You and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with him. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars, according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. 
And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. One interesting thing we see here with Mount Sinai is that it's preparing the people for the tabernacle. Just like the tabernacle, there are three levels to this mountain. There's the base of the mountain where the people are. There's a higher level where Aaron and the other leaders can go. And then there's the top where only one man, Moses, can go. Keep that in mind. We'll see it again in a few weeks. But here Moses comes down to the people. He tells them everything God said. Again, we see Moses is writing everything down. He reads the law to the people, and they respond. They say, all the Lord has spoken, we'll do it. This is like the reciting of the vows at a wedding ceremony. Think about it. God has said what he will do for the people. The people have said what they will do for God, and promises are made in this covenant. And to ratify the covenant, Moses performs some ceremonial actions. Things like walking the aisle, putting on rings. These actions celebrate and acknowledge God's covenant with his people. What does Moses do, though? Well, first we see Moses builds an altar and 12 pillars. And he makes two kinds of sacrifices on the altar. The first sacrifice we see is the burnt offering. An animal was slain, the blood was drained, and the rest was burned on the altar to the Lord. This offering was typically given to acknowledge the people's sin and make atonement before a holy God. But there's a second kind of offering mentioned here. It's called a peace offering. This was not an offering for sin or guilt, but rather was an offering usually given as a sign of thanksgiving to God. Some of the animal was burned on the altar, but the rest was given back to the person making the sacrifice to be cooked and actually eaten. It was like having a meal with God signifying your fellowship or your peace with him. Moses took the blood from the sacrifices and he, he did something that to us is, is very strange, but it's, it's really important to this story. He sprinkles half the blood on the altar and then he sprinkles the other half of the blood on the people. How would you feel about that? <laughs> It'd be a little off-putting, wouldn't it? Why, why does he do this? Well, let's remember what the blood stood for. The blood signified atonement and forgiveness of sins so that they could have a way to a holy God. The animal had taken their sin and died their death, like we just sang, the Lamb of God in my place. And by sprinkling the altar and then sprinkling the people, Moses was showing that these people are now connected together by the covenant. The people were covered so that now they could rightly have a relationship with God. And here's what Moses said. Look back again at verse 8. He said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That phrase, the blood of the covenant, remember that. We're going to come back to that. But we see this is all of this is being done to signify the covenant God made. With his people. This is like their wedding ceremony. And here comes the next part of the ceremony. Look at verses 9 through 11. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven, for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God. And ate and drank. Man, this is wild. Think about that. These men, they go up the mountain and it says they saw God. 
Now, on one hand, that, that should be impossible. We'll see in a few chapters in this book, God says no one can see him and live. But there are rare occasions in the Bible when God graciously reveals a part of himself. It's almost always just a part. Here they see his feet. And under his feet, this pavement of sapphire stones, this beautiful transparent blue. And here's the key. It says, God did not lay his hand on the men. This is saying he decided not to kill them. And think about this. This is what we're dealing with here when we approach a holy God as sinful people. And these guys, they offered sacrifices. They were appointed leaders by God. They were invited to come up. And still, God wants to remind them that he was gracious that he didn't take their lives on the spot. That's how holy God is. His holiness does not mix with our sinfulness. But somehow they beheld God. And they ate and they drank. There's the last part of the peace offering. This is like the wedding reception. They have a meal with God to honor the covenant that he had made with them. Is anything starting to ring a bell here? Anything you see in any kind of connection here? Hang on to it. Come on. We're going to come back to it. But Exodus 24, last part, verses 12 through 18. The Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we return to you, and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and in the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called the Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Moses goes back up the mountain. God gives him these tablets of stone where he's written the law. And he meets with him for 40 days and 40 nights. We'll see what happens next, what he says. But let's pause today, and and I want you to see that this entire scene is meant to point us to the covenant God had made with his people. Though, yes, it's a bit scary and intense with the mountain and all the blood, this is really a celebration of sorts. This is the moment God formalized his relationship with his people and taught them what it's like to live as a holy nation. So let me close and share with you three things we see that the people of God have to celebrate in this passage. Here's the first. Number one, the people of God celebrate God's providence. God's providence. That word providence refers to God's sovereign care and guidance for his people. We saw at the end of chapter 23 that God did not just tell the people which direction to go and say, hey, hey, I'll see you when you get there. No, God promises to guide them and lead them every step of the way. He's going to protect them from their enemies, provide for their daily needs, and ensure that his will is done in their lives. As followers of Jesus, we too can celebrate God's providence in our lives. See, God did not create you, save you, and send you out to figure things out on your own. No, God is supernaturally ordering your steps and arranging your life in a purposeful way. 
God is in control, and he will not stop working in your life until he, you reach the promised land, which is heaven. Philippians 1.6 says it like this. says, and I'm sure of this, that he, God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I'm sure, like me, you can look back over your life and see all the ways that God has been faithful. And friends, if you're still breathing, that means God is not finished. He will complete his work in your life by his providence. He promised. Here's the second thing people of God celebrate in Exodus in this passage. Number two, they celebrated God's forgiveness. Sinful people cannot have a relationship with a holy God. So there has to be a way to deal with man's sin. That was why sacrifices were a part of the covenant ceremony. The sacrifices provided a temporary way for man's sin to be dealt with and for the people to come to God. And the same thing is true for us today as Jesus followers, except on an infinitely greater scale. Listen to how the author of Hebrews makes this connection. And I want you to notice how many references he makes back to this passage we just read in Exodus. Look at this. Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 22. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We too have received forgiveness by a sacrifice, except our sacrifice came by the death of Jesus on the cross. Do you see how much greater and how much more powerful that is? Think about it. The sacrifices in Exodus were animals. Our sacrifice was a perfect man. The sacrifices in Exodus were made by sinful people. Our sacrifice was made by God dying himself. The sacrifices in Exodus were temporary. Our sacrifice was one time for all and forever. The sacrifices in Exodus were sprinkled on the people's bodies, but our sacrifice was sprinkled on our hearts. Through Jesus, we can celebrate God's forgiveness of all our sins because he died on your behalf. Here's the third and last thing we see the people celebrate in Exodus. Number three, they celebrated God's presence. God not only promised his people his providence, his forgiveness, but he promised them his presence. Remember, that was God's entire plan. The whole Bible is God wanting to dwell with his people. And yes, at this stage, his presence is mediated through Moses, who's on the mountain, but, but God is with his people. And as followers of Jesus, we too can celebrate God's presence again in an infinitely greater way. See, because of Jesus, we don't stand at the bottom of Mount Sinai shaking in terror like the Israelites. But we've come to a new mountain. Listen again to the author of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. It says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That, remember that? That was Exodus 19. Listen to this. Here's the turn. Here's the turn. But 
you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Man, that's so much there. We can see all these references back to Exodus and Genesis and how we have a similar but a much, much greater relationship with God today through Jesus. Because of Jesus, we can go up the mountain and meet with God and we can join in the celebration of our relationship with him. Why? It says because we have a new covenant, a better covenant. This covenant is better Because the mediator isn't Moses, who was a sinful man. It's Jesus, the perfect God-man. And it's been established not by the blood of some animals, but by the blood of Jesus. And whereas Moses and the elders were the only ones who got to go up and celebrate the covenant with a meal, under the new covenant, all God's people get to join in the meal. And we call that meal the Lord's Supper. Just like the eating of the peace offering, this is the meal we eat to celebrate our relationship with God. If you'll remember, Jesus first established the Lord's Supper for Christians on the night before he was crucified. And listen to the words of Jesus. Watch how he tied this together in their minds. They would have known Exodus. They would have known all we just said. Watch how he ties it together for them. Matthew 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. Remember the eating, the sacrifice? And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Remember the sprinkle? Which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Guys, when we take the Lord's Supper... What we are doing is remembering the new covenant we have with God through Jesus. Because of his death on the cross and resurrection, we have a relationship with God. And the Lord's Supper for us is like an anniversary where every time we take it, we remember again what it means to be the bride of Christ. We celebrate first God's providence how he's continued to work all things together for our good, and how he's brought us here again today to come back to the table as a family of God. We celebrate, second, God's forgiveness, how the death of Jesus has covered even the sins we will commit today. They're already paid for. And that was what the bread and the cup symbolized. And third, we celebrate God's presence, how every time we come to eat this meal, we do so with God. It's the Lord's Supper. He's here with us. And one day when we're with him forever, in the fullness of his presence in heaven, guess what? The Bible says we're going to have a meal with him. Listen to what the Bible calls that meal. Revelation 19. John's seeing this vision. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride, that's us, has made herself ready. 
It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, he said this to John, he said, write this. Blessed are those who are invited, who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Man, did you see that? Do you see how this all ties together in one story? Look, when we take the Lord's Supper, we are joining together in a long line of people remembering God's salvation and celebrating our covenant relationship with him by simply eating a meal. This morning, we're going to join together in that very meal. But first, let's just take a moment this morning to prepare our hearts. Would you bow your head with me in prayer?